A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Lee Cohen, who is a senior fellow of the Bow Group and the Bruges Group. And we're going to be asking what Queen Elizabeth II meant to America and Americans. Now, Lee, there's been a little bit of sort of media kerfuffle around some snark in the American media. Academics have tweeted sort of gleefully about the death of Queen Elizabeth II. The New York Times, as is its wont, it seems, when it comes to Britain at the moment, has said some disparaging things about the Queen and the monarchy's colonial legacy. But generally, I think it's probably fair to say that doesn't reflect the attitude of most Americans. Am I right? Yes, indeed. I would consider the source, as you did, of those reports, and particularly the New York Times, which seems to be on a vendetta against Britain that is really kind of head-scratching, to be honest. But I would say there is nearly universal love and sorrow now in this time of the loss of the Queen, because, Freddie, just like Britain, in Britain you lost your head of state, who was so much more than that. You lost your head of nation, which is a sort of an intangible role that we don't have over here. We have a head of state, of course, and we all lost something much deeper and more profound. The whole world lost this most admirable global figure, even though she was not our queen or our head of state in America, but she was the best living example of the best virtues of humanity, duty, sacrifice, love, selflessness, dependability, faith, a figure almost, dare I say, Christ-like, for whom there is no number two. And she gave us, like you, and I'm not sure that Britons realize this, but she gave us just the same, an example to which to strive. She owned the moral high ground because her motivations were selfless. And she is irreplaceable. No one else, no other figure, owing in part to her personal qualities and in part to her constitutionally defined office, can project her impact, her value, and no other figure currently living that I can think of deserves the reverence that she was accorded. It might seem odd for non-Americans to think that Americans hold the Queen in such high esteem because you are a fiercely egalitarian country at heart, and of course monarchy is not egalitarian. How do Americans square that? Well, that's an interesting question because, of course, Though we rejected a monarchical system in 1776 because of, and I learned this from my friend Andrew Roberts, our foundational myth that George III was a tyrant, which uh, doesn't seem to really play out if you look at the facts. We Americans, even though we rejected a system of monarchy, we're nevertheless irresistibly attracted to both the dignified and noble aspects of monarchy as well as to the fairy tale aspects of ancient castles and jewels 
none of which, of course, we have here. And the void in America of a dutiful, respectful monarch, because we don't have that in our system, because our president is a political figure who's both head of state and head of government. This leaves us with politicians who were, by nature, I'm not saying they're they're all bad, but they're self-serving in that they have an agenda, they have to raise money, they have things that drive them that aren't selfless. So we're left with politicians who are in that category and celebrities who are generally more self-serving and none of whom possess the dignity, admirability, or the sense of noble purpose that the queen embodied. And we're famous, I suppose, for our Hollywood glitz and glamour, but that pales in comparison to ancient castles and dynastic families who link back through the ages. Well, there, there is this American drift towards dynastic thinking, perhaps. If you look at presidencies, you look at the Bushes, the Clintons, the Kennedys, uh, you could say the Bidens even. There is a, a tendency in American politics to think in dynastic terms about the office of the presidency. How does that square with what we see with going on with Elizabeth? Because it would seem to me perhaps some of the affection for the Queen in America might be related to a disappointment with these glamorous dynasties that have actually turned out to be not so glamorous. And I think you just put your finger on it there. It turned out to be not so glamorous. So in politics, it's about inertia and momentum and resources, financial resources. So that is fully understandable that there would be these dynasties or dynasties, as we would say over here, these political dynasties, because, you know, just like in a hereditary monarchy, one comes up through a system, one is exposed to a certain environment, one knows how the game is played. However, here, I find that it, it leaves one cold because there is no link to a historical past that goes back a thousand years, that goes back to 1066 and the Normans, that there's sort of been an unbroken link. So that represents so much more to people to remind them of who they are, to remind them of their history, to keep them moored in their nation. And, you know, while we might have a Kennedy dynasty, a Bush dynasty, a Biden dynasty, they really don't contain that link to a majestic historical past with great events and great figures and some not so great, but that really keep the British people informed and reminded of where they came from. Let's go back to some of that snark from places like the New York Times, though, because it is quite interesting. Somebody at the New York Times said Harry Kunzru, is a British writer, actually, but published in the New York Times, talked about the uh, white queen who spent her life smiling and waving at cheering native people around the world, a sort of living ghost of a system of rapacious and bloodthirsty extraction. Well said, Harry Kunzu, I suppose, if you are that way inclined of thinking. I wonder what you think this is about, because it seems to be very much in the field of academia, and people talk a lot about how woke American universities have become. And to embrace that mindset, you have to think of everything before the civil rights movement as evil and everything else that has come along as a sort of difficult march toward progress. Is there this current in academia in America that just cannot tolerate the idea of monarchy? Certainly, yes, because 
academia is the place that's really driving this change, this attempt to rewrite history. And in order to do it, they have to destroy all of the good things and all of the existing history. And the queen is a particular challenge because she is nearly universally loved. Our opinion polls seem to have her in Britain almost consistently at 80%, which most politicians would envy greatly. And I think this is a great challenge because they can't say this is someone who has no meaning because she has enormous meaning to many people and to, to minority peoples as well because of chiefly the qualities that we discussed before, the selflessness, the ability, because she doesn't take political positions and make political statements, everyone can claim her for whatever position they hold. And everyone can feel that the queen represents me, be they from any walk of life or category of society. So this is a particular challenge for universities that want to rewrite history. And, you know, as well, the queen was a complete champion of people all over the world, the people in the Caribbean, et cetera. She really seemed to be colorblind. And I think they have a, a very hard time tarring her with that and trying to do damage to her on that front, because it just the reality doesn't play out. She was out there trumpeting, uh, being delighted for all of the nations that voluntarily wanted to stay with Britain in the Commonwealth, no matter where they be or who they were populated by. I suppose some people might think it's that she represented a bridge between the old world and the new and a, an ability to, to square those two worlds. And a lot of people who hate her hate her because they don't want there to be a bridge between these two worlds. Well said, that. I think that's an excellent point, yes. Let's talk about the Queen, the Queen in America, because perhaps her most famous moment for Americans was the speech after 9-11, mm. in which she said probably her most famous quote now, which is that grief is the price we pay for love. And I think Americans like that because it was not obviously an important time for America, but it was also a fact that a monarch, you know, famously the monarchy doesn't show emotion or whatever, but the, the Queen did talk in emotional terms. She was capable of talking about emotion, despite the reserve and so on. Is that a fair assessment? I, I think that's a very fair assessment, and I think it goes well back from 9-11, probably to the time when she was Princess Elizabeth standing on the balcony with her parents on, on VE Day, and probably feeling, I'm projecting here because I don't know, I never heard her say it, obviously, but probably holding a great deal of affection for the United States for their role in World War II. Ironically, today, September 13th, is the anniversary of the bombing of Buckingham Palace when that happened in 1940, September 13th, 1940, when the Queen Mother famously said, you know, I'm glad this happened. Now I can look the East End in, in the eye. But the Queen, perhaps from that point on, she's always been a champion of the so-called special relationship between the United States and Great Britain, which considering the diplomatic, economic, and military importance uh, of the US-UK relationship, it makes sense that she would be attentive to the special relationship for other reasons. But I believe that was underpinned by a sincere affection and how could she not be cognizant of uh, the shared values aspect 
And, you know, the very interesting thing there is that even if Downing Street and the White House disagree, which they have occasionally, such as during the Vietnam conflict or the Suez crisis, the Queen was always there to smooth it over and keep it smooth sailing. And she did that through soft power, which in her skilled hands really was a remarkable thing, which humbles even, you know, some of our most machismo presidents. So I wonder if um, among Americans there was a, an enthusiasm for the Queen because she represented a gentle decline. Britain was obviously a power in decline for much of it, her reign, but she showed that that didn't necessarily have to be a disaster. And I think America is not necessarily in decline, but certainly there's a lot of declinism in America. Do you think Americans look at her and think, you know, the the fading of, of America's superpower unipolar moment isn't necessarily a tragedy? Well, while I think that's an interesting perspective, I don't think that most Americans make that connection, to be honest. You know, the interesting thing is that perhaps a previous queen, Queen Victoria, sort of as Britain's symbol of Britain at the height of its imperial power, perhaps shared more in common with the U.S. presidents of the day. The U.S. presidents of the day project power, power and might, and a beloved monarch like Queen Elizabeth projects the values that are worth fighting for. So I think together, that's a very powerful combination. And a prime minister, just as a president, can't project those things because they are political and half the nation may be with them and then others will be against them. Only really a monarch can do that. And the queen did that fantastically well. And to be honest with you, I don't think too many in America look at the queen and say, oh, she's someone who's managed to power and decline. Quite the opposite. I think they see someone who's, you know, so impressive, beloved, I can tell you from the personal experience I had actually meeting the Queen and Prince Philip on a state visit in 2007, it was the most sought after invitation in Washington. Mm. And that was not on the minds of anyone that Britain is a power in decline. Quite the opposite. It was a moment of great pride for everyone who was fortunate enough to be there. And so I wouldn't say anyone really associates the Queen here with that kind of decline. Well, I, I thought we could probably get through this podcast without discussing Meghan Markle, but perhaps we should touch yeah. on it because <laughs> I think a lot of Atlanticists and people who are enthusiastic about the special relationship like the idea of an American entering the royal family because it would sort of tie the two nations together. However, recent experience has not gone very well. Do Americans feel, as a lot of Meghan supporters feel, that the monarchy could not accept her because she was mixed race or perhaps because she was an American and British people have some sort of revulsion towards Americans at some level? Well, I can't speak for all Americans. I can speak for my own observations in this. I see Meghan Markle as an opportunity lost because here's someone who's got a lot going for her. She's attractive. She's intelligent. She's photogenic. She's cogent. And she comes across well in public speech. I see it as a missed opportunity because here's someone who was accepted with open arms into the royal family, very enthusiastically by Britons, and could have actually done a lot for race relations, say, as sort of a symbol of someone who was, you know, biracial or, you know, an African-American accepted 
into the absolute uh, pinnacle of society, into the British royal family. And instead, it, it didn't play out that way. And sadly, um, I don't think she was very invested in learning a lot about her husband's country, because there's so much there to be excited about. Unfortunately, she has other ambitions and motivations that drive her. And, you know, while probably 99% of the world would be absolutely thrilled for an invitation to join the royal family, it didn't jive well necessarily with her personal ambitions. So an opportunity lost, really, but perhaps, perhaps not fatally, as I believe King Charles is really trying to smooth things over. Well, perhaps uh, fate has meant that uh, they were in Britain, Harry and Meghan were in Britain when the Queen died, and it has presented this opportunity for them to be reintegrated into the family, which I think some people are hoping might happen. Do you, do you hope that might happen? I hope that happens if the Sussexes are of the mind that they can be valuable members of the royal family and play a role that fits in with the constitutional expectations of the monarch and supporting those expectations and being good public servants rather than casting a light upon themselves. I hope so because I have the highest hopes for King Charles that he will have a prosperous and impactful reign. He's got big shoes to fill. He doesn't need to be plagued constantly by this problem on the other side of the Atlantic and to be needled. And so, yeah, I, I would very much like to see this resolved and happily on all sides. I'm not, I'm not sure it's possible. I hope it's possible. Well, let's keep an eye on it. And I hope perhaps we will discuss it again in the future. Lee Cohen, thanks very much for coming on to Americano. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 